Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. G'day everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. This is episode 78. And those who are Adelaide 500 aficionados, like my good friend Will Dale, who is on the other end of the Zoom call today, will know why that number is important in Adelaide 500 history. Uh, Good afternoon to you, Will. Uh, Why is that important in Adelaide history? Good afternoon. That would be because it is the number of laps in each leg of a 250k leg of an Adelaide 500 race. Makes sense. I like yeah, it. It adds and, up, doesn't it? Well, and that's not the reason why, but this episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timkin is our Adelaide 500 special. We've decided to look back at the history of this amazing event in South Australia in the wake of the, let's face it, shit news that the Adelaide 500 is being canned for next year and the future. Uh, Plenty of outrage, plenty of emotion, plenty of feeling on social media from the Supercars fans. And I think more than just Supercar fans, event fans in general who love the concerts, they love what it brought to Adelaide in terms of the the tourism, the money that was spent in hotels and restaurants and uh, all sorts of things that come with having an event like that. It hasn't shocked and surprised me to see the real emotion that surrounded this decision from the reaction from the fans. What about you? I totally agree. You think back, this this is the city that's still upset that it lost the F1 Grand Prix in 1995. Of course, this this news was really going to, um, was really going to light a fire under a lot of people. But like, if you think back to February when this year's event happened, I know we had chats around the time, you were looking at the crowds and looking at the crowd numbers coming through at the end of each day. And it did raise red flags as to, the future viability of the event, but you think back now as to um, as to you've got to wonder how we got here in the first place because we all know how how well attended and how big this event is, and you can see with the groundswell of support from people saying this is outrageous that this is not going to be a thing anymore. How did we get here? Like how did the event end up at a point where that could even be considered? It's very simple, Will, because it was engineered there. That's exactly how we got there. So for those who might not understand the point, we're going to talk about the the history of the race. We're going to talk about some of the great moments, some of the great races, the great drivers. Uh, There's so many elements, but I think we need to start by covering off what you've said. How did we get to the point that the Hall of Fame event, the only event in the Supercars Hall of Fame, ends up killed after what could be said was its worst year, its toughest year from a crowd perspective, this was being engineered for a couple of years. So the, the, the South Australian Motorsport Board that ran this event for so many years and built it into that, um, well, it didn't really have to build it. It started big and it just got a bit bigger every time. It's not mm. like it was small and then grew in the following years to astronomical levels. But it was basically taken into Events SA, a government department. And you could see over the last few years, there was the... Look, and this is just my opinion... Why would you announce crowd numbers this year that were significantly down on previous years unless you were using it as part of an agenda for what you wanted to do with the event? Every year, less and less elements were were at the event. It didn't feel as big. It didn't feel as promoted. It didn't feel as pumped up. The, The people that we have known for so many years in South Australia who were involved with the Grand Prix and the 500 over the years were all flung, were all moved away. It's kind of akin, and I use this story a lot with people I talk to about other things. It's like saying, here, Noons, uh, I've got this great makeup company. It'll make you $5 million a year. Hmm, $5 million a year. This sounds good to me. One problem, Will, I know nothing about makeup. (laughs) I will drive that company off the cliff (laughs) if you gave me that company. And I would, no doubt, because I don't know about the product. I'm not connected to it. It's not my thing. And I feel like for the South Australian government, them being the direct promoter, runner of this event, it was not their thing. And once they made it their thing, they could control the thing. And I think that the 
the fact is that this was a, a desired outcome for a couple of years and clearly COVID was a nice scenario to help with that. Oh, by the way, Holden's gone. Oh, by the way, the crowd was down. Well, we just had all those bushfires. People were hurting in the pocket. The emotion of Holden, there was plenty going on that people were spending their money on and had going on in their worlds. So I tell you, though, what other event draws that sort of crowd at all? So it's, exactly. not, it's not like there was only 84 people there. It had, <laughs> it, had it nosedived off the cliff. Uh, I just, yeah, as much as I'm a proud Victorian, I feel so sorry for the people of South Australia who have had, again, last time it was different. The, the race was, you know, still alive and moved elsewhere to this side of the Stolen, board. I believe, is the word that was often used. I think it still is. <laughs> but this is not going anywhere. You can't replicate or put an no. Adelaide 500 anywhere else. So I, I feel very sorry for all our listeners who are either South Australians or part of the South Australian motorsport community or fans of the sport because we we have lost. Uh, and And I speak about being lost. Look, yes, it could come back, but the likelihood of something like this coming back is pretty tricky with a lot of that infrastructure will be sold off. Uh, you'll have to, you can't just go and press the button again to restart something like this. So we'll see in time. But uh, And we, of course, uh, hope that it is it's something that gets achieved, but it's going to be hard. It'll be hard. And, and I think it'd be naive of any opposition to think that, uh, and good on the Labor uh, opposition for taking up the fight. Clearly, they're going to use it as an election issue and a, a political pawn, but that's what life's all about, using whatever you can use to try to get in and seize the power. But I can't see a sea of voters uh, changing their vote or voting Labor on the back of bringing back a, a four-day car race through the streets. Nice theory, but I can't see it happening. It's... and. Mentioning the streets is a worthwhile point because that's effectively what made the event such a special thing. The fact that they were, it was the same streets that Formula One raced on had that halo, that aura, that history from that event, and it was close to the city. It was like I can think of occasions on more than one occasion where I've walked to the track from our hotel and you could hear the race cars, like not, not offensively loud, but you could hear the race cars out on track and that's fantastic. Like I've never experienced that before. That was great. They don't have that where you're from up in Queensland, in North Queensland, mate. It's, it's not a thing. <laughs> Ironically, they did when they introduced the Townsville, Townsville 400. But uh, that's another story. That is another story. Another podcast. We want to celebrate all the great things about the Adelaide 500. We want to bemoan its uh, departure from the supercars calendar for next year and for the next little while at the very least. So we, it's interesting we have a whiteboard here at work where we put all of the things that we would like to do down the track in a year, two, three, five years, book projects, ideas for collectors, prints, DVD races we want to release, but it takes a while to get to them. But when the news of this dropped, we were all on the text messages straight away that night between us saying, right, that Adelaide 500 book, it's probably time for us to do. So next year, 2021, we will have released the history of the Adelaide 500 from go to woe from 99 to 2020. Uh, photo of every car from every year's event, bit of a trademark thing that we do, which I don't think we can trademark, but, you know, you know signature. We can do it. The, yeah. yeah, probably a signature element to some of our books and publications. Uh, we've roped in some good mates of ours in Richard Crail and Stefan Bartholomeus. It's going to be a, a big banger and it'll go to pre-order early next year. So for those who want to put, have their Adelaide 500 history on their bookshelf in a fantastic collectible book, that will be what we will do. Sensational Adelaide, I think, is a pretty appropriate title for uh, a supercars book. Uh, speaking of, just a quick one too, Christmas is coming like scarily fast, real fast. Well, Christmas is it's always coming, but... It's really coming now. Uh, this week is really good because speaking of books, we've got our new Glenn Seaton book is officially out now and the new Wellington Street Race book. So a nice connection from Adelaide being one of Australia's iconic street tracks to Wellington being New Zealand's absolute iconic street race from the 80s and 90s. Uh, hardcover collector's books, they're, they're rippers, they're out now. You can buy them from our online shop. The website address is bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. And if you're having some trouble on what you need to buy someone for Christmas or what they'd like or, or what do they want, 
buy a gift card. That's the best way around it. You can buy them from our online store as well. Now, you've mentioned the point before, well, the word event. And I think that's the important thing here. This wasn't a race. This wasn't mm. a race meeting. Uh, this was an event. This was, yes, there was car racing, but there were concerts. There was food. There was live entertainment. There was precinct goings on all the time. There was something to look at, something to see, something to listen to, something to smell, something to get all the senses going. And that's where this event uh, touched every point to hit the hardcore racing fan, the general event enthusiast, the music fan, the interested onlooker who goes, oh, what's all this about? I'll go and have a look. It had something for everyone. And that's why uh, it was absolutely a bang on event. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you'd go into town, which was very, you just stroll across into Ronald Mall, down the strip of restaurants and just go have dinner, have a few beers and then go back to the hotel, get up in the morning, do it all over again. As <laughs> we put out the call on social media for your, fa- for your favourite memories from the Adelaide 500 and Craig Marston makes the point that most of my memories for the 500 were away from the track. Yeah, Craig, uh, yeah, uh, hard to scream. <laughs> a lot of my favourite memories from the event were all from uh, away from the track as much as the ones at it. Uh, if they're away from the track, then it's probably a surprise that he remembers them because they might have had a couple of quite sherbets attached to them, I would have thought. Oh, there's a few good memories from the Adelaide 500 that I don't remember either. <laughs> Is there video evidence or photo proof? Uh, I plead the fifth, Your Honour. Okay, fair call. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I think makes the event so great is the, the track. Challenging, fast, demanding, bit of everything. The fast turn eight, the, mm. the bumpy 90 degree lefts and rights. It's a racetrack. You can race people on it. You can pass them. You can actually muscle a car that's not capable of a result on a track like the Bend or Phillip Island and actually make it do something at that track that it can't do at other places. So we've seen some ripping races over the years. We've seen some sadness. We've seen some, some big accidents, of course, sadly, uh, Ashley Cooper in 2008 was killed in a crash in the development series race there. There's been some, some big crashes otherwise, but apart from that, generally there's, there's been a very um, a safe bill of health for that circuit over the, the course of its time. It, it's a serious racetrack. It's always had serious consequences. And I, th- I think they're probably why the race drivers love those sorts of, of racetracks. And, um, and the fact, as you said, it's a track where the driver can, get up and get up on the wheel and make a bit of a difference. I mean, you think of the run of success that the Holden racing team had there after its glory years. Exactly where I was thinking. Yeah. The fact that James Courtney won the event in how many years? 14 14 and 15. And then he won a race in 16. That was the one where he famously went, what, eight Ks an hour faster in a turn eight. Was all crossed up and sideways. And somehow managed to get out the other side and, still is wondering how on earth he managed to make it through and, and went on and won the race. So uh, they were the case in point that I was thinking. Holden Racing Team, James Courtney, was you know two-time Adelaide 500 overall event winner in 14 and 15 at a time when those cars on you know high-speed constant radius corners were still struggling. But they every year in Adelaide, you just knew that they were well, Tander or Courtney or whoever was driving them at the time was, was going to be in the mix. And and looking at the list of winners over the years, there, there were there's not a truckload of race winners. When you think about no. the sheer number of races from 1999 being, uh, we should point out that that was scored as one race over mm. two days. It wasn't two individual races. But from there on, we've had two races. There are a few years there where we had the three race format with two on a Saturday, one on a Sunday, which... I wasn't a fan of. I liked the 250 stuff. I agree. But, but you look through the list of the names of the winners and there's a trend. There, there's Once someone gets on top there, they stay on top for a while. Lowndes won three of the first four races there. Then Scaife got a bit of a roll on. Ambrose punched out, I think, five of six. Winkup got a roll on. He won, I think, five of seven races in a row. Tanda had his time in the sun. Then Car of the Future came along and it quietened down and it mixed it up a little bit. And in, the, in more recent times, you had Van Gisbergen and McLaughlin dominate the place. So it's one of those places where if you were really good, it brought out the best. The cream of the crop performed at Adelaide. That's why you don't see any of those weird winners in there that um, fluked one. And, and Nick Perkat did not fluke 2016. His team mm. read the rule book and did it right. 
Exactly, as evidenced by the fact that he beat home two DJR Team Penske cars on the road, but they both got dropped down the results because they didn't get the rules right and mm. they copped penalties as a result. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars unforgettable. Over the years, there's been so many great races and so many great memories. So let's bound into a little bit of that. One of the things that stands out for you, I think, that is actually one that I was going to suggest too, but I'll let you have it. But it's, it is severely overlooked in terms of the great finishes of the Adelaide 500. I was in the pit lane that this day happened watching it. And, and I, I, the, um, the, the, the crowd went spare while this fight was brewing and then ongoing. You tell me more about it. <laughs> it was the 2000 race. It was the Saturday. It was Holden versus Ford. It was the factory Holden versus the factory Ford. Glenn Seaton leading the race. The factory Ford that wasn't a factory Ford, remember? It wasn't a factory Ford, but it looked like it anyway. Uh, it was blue with a, Ford, with a Ford logo on the side of it. It was the closest thing we had to a factory Ford. Near enough. And Lowndes was chasing him down. And it was that year where they were closing the pit lane under safety cars, although it didn't quite work out that way. But in any case, it, it resulted in Seaton having pitted, made his um, compulsory pit stop for tyres before his compulsory pit stop for fuel because he couldn't do them both at the same time because of the rules. Lowndes went the other way around and made his compulsory tyre stop later. So he had much fresher rubber but had to make up something like 10 seconds. Then there was a late safety car, closed all the gaps up and set up about a 10, 10 lap shootout to the end with Lowndes chasing down Seaton. And as you said, you could hear, even on the TV, you could hear the crowd just cheering and and like building and sort of, and that's, that's the big thing about the event, like crowd noise. Crowd noise is a motor race. We don't hear often enough. Adelaide provided that. Adelaide provided mm. so many memories where, where the crowd and its cheering and its boisterousness is an intrinsic part of special moments. And the moment when Lowndes mugged Seaton coming onto Bartles Road, that's one of them. Well, that, that fight was brewing there for a while. And once that safety car got him back in the game onto the back, I was standing in the pit lane working for Motorsport News magazine. And I really wasn't taking notes. I was just watching because it was <laughs> such a good fight. And it was one of those ones where Jaws was coming. He was coming. Mm. He was coming. He's going to bite him. He's going to get him. <laughs> but is there enough laps to get him? Eh, probably. But the theatre of it all was fantastic. And mm. when you go, oh, what are the iconic three, four, five Adelaide 500 moments? It's McLaughlin and the Jandal and the FBR and all that stuff with the wing cup, which absolutely is, you know, that's the moment that made one of the greatest supercar drivers of all time. See, I was um, in the pit lane. I was in the pit lane for that one. And I remember, and like I said about the crowd, that's the first time I, that was my first Adelaide 500 as well. And that was the first time I heard the crowd. It was like a football stadium. It was amazing. And the great thing was, even though the, the moment where they're side by side coming into Victoria Park isn't in front of the grandstand, the grandstand can see it because of the screens mm. and the reaction comes from there. And on that day with Lowndes and Seaton in 2000, they were building every time. He's getting closer. The Holden faithful are getting up and about. The Ford faithful are up and about. It was bloody loud. It's just sad that that one doesn't sit in the top three, four, five Adelaide moments. You kind of had to be there to experience it, to really cast the mind back. It's 20 years ago now. That's mm. one of those things where you go, ah, oh, yeah, right. Sort of thought it was three or four. 20? Jeez. Yeah. But, I mean, there's, there's so many great uh, Adelaide 500 moments. There's the McLaughlin one is a clear one. Scaife from the back to win in the wet in 2000 on the Sunday. Even with a penalty, which a lot of people forget, he had to take a, uh, a trip through the pit lane. Uh, I can't even remember what that was for. Was it for speeding in the pit lane or something like that? Um, Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yeah, it was one of those ones where you go, well, 38th to 1st is a record that's not going to be beaten ever because we won't have 38 cars on a grid no. anytime. So it was speeding in pit lane. I just had a yeah. quick, uh, quick double check. Uh, what else springs to mind? Wing Cup in 2012 with that great drive where he, he got Will Davison on the last lap when he ran out of juice, which is the, the race that he won after his dad had died a week or so ago. Uh, there's been, you know, big crashes. Brad Jones <laughs> on his lid, remember, 
in the oh, Aussie Oh, this market. is Brad Jones. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, Billy Woods. Yeah. Is it Billy? Yeah, um, it was Billy Woods because they were coming back from an ad break. Yeah, all the good stuff always used to happen in ad breaks, didn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, Todd Kelly giving Marcus Ambrose a welcome V8 supercars down the front straight. Oh, that's in 2001. Right. Yeah, that's right. He did too. Yeah, that was that was Marcus's one of his first initiations into V8 supercar racing. And it, because it became that season opening round for most of the time, it wasn't in the, the first couple of years, but then it ended up taking the slot in 2002. Uh, and apart from when we were in the Middle East there for a couple of times, it was the series opener. It made sense. It just it felt right. It fitted. It was the time that you saw all the new cars and drivers and colours for the first time at an event that mattered. It wasn't like round one was at a, you know, a race meeting. It was an event which made it all um, bigger and better. But thinking back to some, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here having a look at the, the list of winners from over the years because it's triggering the memory. I mean, Scaife winning in the Golden Child, the, the hybrid car in 2003 when, uh, you know, Ambrose was really on a tear around that sort of period. I remember Jason Bright throwing away an Adelaide win when he ended up, le- he was leading Scaife when they were teammates at HRT in 02. And, um, smacked the wall and knocked the Watts linkage out of it and, and was probably on target to win there. So, um, but then he, he got the win the previous year. He was a bit last to first on the Sunday where he made a, a pit stop at the right time and came on through and ended up picking up the win. So it was a race that you were never out of because guys were winning or finish on the podium from nowhere on the grid or nowhere in the middle of a race. Totally. The attrition of... Well, the heat is probably something we should also address because there were quite a few hot races down there. I think back to that 2016 race we were talking about, Nick Perkat won. It's easy to forget that that weekend was mid to high 30s oh, all was, the way up to race time and then that, that storm front rolled in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was miserable. That was mm. all... I mean, there's been some... I think it was... Was it 19... It was so, actually, that mm. was, it was the Red Hot Chili Peppers year because my wife came to the event for the first time she'd ever come to a, a Adelaide 500, at, primarily to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers, not to go see the car racing, although she <laughs> does like car racing. But it was so hot. And, and I mean, we've seen drivers with boots melting and guys getting it. I mean, remember Rick Kelly, 2002, his first one? Mm. He was cooked. But he could not do the Sunday because he was totally shut down from the Saturday. And the really scary one was Steve Owen. Remember when he mm. drove the Autobahn car for Rod Nash and, and Marty Brandt ran that car? I think it was 2006 off the top of my head. Um, he was in absolute la-la land. I remember standing in the pit lane watching him go past, um, pulling gears at weird spots, and he was ser- and they were telling him to pit, and he just was driving around and finally went to sleep and ended up in the wall. Yeah. Uh, and was in hospital for a couple of days from memory. It was, you know, as the track has massive consequences, so too does the race, the format, the heat. That's what really made it a, an absolute test. Well, I went back and watched that 2000 race a little while ago and all they talked about was all the drivers that have been doing heap of fitness work, heap of training, stuff that, like, wasn't as big a deal as it certainly has been the past five years where you don't hear about it anywhere near as much, but it was easily the most demanding and toughest race on the calendar by, by a massive margin when it was introduced and no one fully appreciated just how tough it was going to be until about 20 laps in <laughs> to that first race. Yeah. I, th- I think a few people got a rude wake up call in, in that mm. first year and that prompted the teams. Uh, I remember that a lot of the cars had the exhaust pipes running underneath the driver out through mm. the, the driver's side of the car. And then they, they re in, in essence, replumbed the cars to be able to pump the heat away from the driver uh, and come up with some different exhaust systems. And Adelaide was one of those real reasons because they just, you can't win a race if you've cooked your driver. If he's yeah. in La La Land um, munching on fumes and it's too hot. I mean, I remember, you know, they lifted Paul Radisich out that first year. John Faulkner mm. was really ill one year. Uh, you know, there were, and there were really fit guys who they'd made it to the end of a race. That's why Stephen Johnson always did well at Adelaide. Mm. Big body, Stevie J, like big tall unit, plenty of him could absorb the punishment that the, the fumes were giving and that 
he, if you look at his Adelaide record, it was pretty good because he could cop the, the pounding. In those AU eras, he was, I think he finished 2001, I think he was on the podium a couple of times. He, he yeah. could actually cope with it. But some of the, the more lightly built guys who were very fit just couldn't cope, were overcome by the event and what it, what it turned on for the body. Oh, it was interesting to hear, I heard David Reynolds talking about this a couple of years ago, that since they went to E85 and the strongly ethanol blended fuel, it's cut a lot of the fumes out. So mm. the fumes that was such a, um, such that would just get trapped by the walls and just hang there and the drivers would be breathing that and that would be one of the things that would be challenging, um, hasn't been a thing since E85 was introduced. The other thing I'll add, quick trivia point, Mm. Who's the only member of the Johnson family to have scored a pole position during the Adelaide 500 event history? Well, this is actually easy when you think about it, but it's not easy if you don't think about it. So think about it this way. Dick Johnson only did the first Adelaide 500. Mm. 1999, then he retired. Wasn't him. Stevie J did it for many years after that, and I know he didn't get a pole position in that time at that track. But... (laughs) <laughs> there yeah. was a laser all-female race for a year or two there. Correct. Am I right in thinking Jilly Johnson had pole in one of those years and is the only Johnson family member to get a pole during the Adelaide 500 era at the Adelaide Parklands Street Circuit? Absolutely correct. She uh-huh. in 2002 for that event. <laughs> that's yeah. got to get in the book somewhere. That's going oh, yeah. in the book. That's, yeah, yeah. That's a cracker. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and you might recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centrepiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport? The $2 billion, yes, billion-dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. It features eight triangular roof panels, or petals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each petal weighs almost 500 metric tonnes and when the roof is closed, each petal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now despite the weight, the size and the complexity of the design, The roof can be closed in just over seven minutes and open in just over eight, with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each petal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer team, and in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast through the course of the year. Now... Back to the podcast. Who do you deem the king of the Adelaide 500? Is it Wing Cup? Couldn't be anyone else, could it? We talk about the event having a um, have basically having pride of place as the first race of the season. And there's that stat where Jamie basically won the first race of the season for the best part of a decade. So, well, if he didn't, Triple Eight did. If exactly. It was Lowndes or it was Van Gisbergen. Um, for, for so long, he's the guy you had to beat at this event. Well, the numbers say it all. Four-time overall winner, i.e. Sunday winner. That's a whole other point, the whole who's the Adelaide 500 winner and how do you determine it. Uh, 11 individual race wins, uh, eight poles. Of course, he cranked out another win in a pole this year. So he's moved his way um, in front. I mean, in the overall wins, Van Gisbergen's up to three. If this event was going to go on for another year or two or three, I reckon Van Gisbergen claims a bunch of those records. But Wink Do you remember his first one? Back in 2013? Uh, no. Oh, first one with Techno, you mean? First one with Techno, yes. Oh, yeah. One on the oh. Sunday. Then had to do the TV cross in the Erebus yes. garage where Channel 7 I was, was based. I was in there. Yeah, this, this was the one where on Saturday he was the first car out of the race mm. because they had a transaxle, transaxle issue and it was the first year of the Albans transaxle in the Car of the Future. It was debut race event of Car of the Future. Mm. Sunday comes out and wins. And of course, this was after he'd left Stone Brothers the previous year, 
the stories were that he was stepping away from the sport, that he wasn't coping, he wasn't dealing with it. He pops back up at Techno. I think one day we'll get to the bottom of the story on all of that. But, yeah, you're right. The post-race interview on the desk, I think it would have been with Scafie and Neil and maybe Matty White, uh, was where the seven host desk was, was in the garage next to Erebus. So Betty sat there the whole time eyeballing him. I remember it vividly. And I think I remember Ben Gisbergen talking about it in the press afterwards that he realised what was going on, looked at her, smiled and gave the trophy a quick polish. <laughs> you got to love that sort of gamesmanship in, in sport, don't you? Uh, I think Ben Gisbergen <laughs> is such an interesting character because of his... Um, because of just... Uh, he's, he's the type of guy he is, the way he deals... He's not a media guy. It's not his thing. He's never pertained it to be... I can't wait for when it's all over. When he retires, um, he's going to have a very good list of achievements uh, and things to look back on. I'd love to get him with the guard down eventually one day and actually really understand and have him open up about a bunch of stuff from across the course of his career because I don't think anyone will get in the door to be able to get any of that until it's all over. And I reckon it'll be... um, quite interesting, quite captivating. But, um, yeah, I mean, you look at his history in Adelaide, he's been the – he and McLaughlin have been the recent dominators of the last, what, three or four years. So he's the only guy that would have had a chance of taking away Jamie's Adelaide crown. And he's he, – you think back to this year, he was very unlucky not to get the Sunday win when he had that mechanical issue late in the race that um, – Well, the fuel – it was more the fuel – it was more the fuel well, that before that. That's what put him there and then the thing broke anyway. But, uh, yeah, yeah – there's all sorts of weird stuff to talk about over the years too. Do you remember when Will Davison won in 2012? Like he nearly won the Saturday, ran out of juice on the last lap and Jamie got him. Mm. He got the win on Sunday to get himself, you know, back and rolling. Led home an FPR one too. But do you remember that he locked up in the last corner and nearly speared it off the road? <laughs> no. I've I mean, forgotten about that. Yeah. He, go look at the video. He comes into the last hairpin. Totally snags a front wheel and it goes for ages and he misses the apex by a hundred years. Had a gap over Frosty, was able to bring it home. But how would that have been if you cooked the last corner and cost yourself a win? Jeepers. Well, you'd never, you'd never be allowed to forget it. It'd be memorable for all the wrong reasons. I'd, I'd probably lead the call of people who wouldn't let him forget it either. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's actually an event that has never really been a Tickford event. They've no. just never... I mean, he, he won there in 2012. Well, you beyond, talk about the drivers that have won there. If there's a curious omission, Frosty. Never yeah, won Frosty. There. Got close in 08 uh, on the Saturday. And I remember, remember Wing Cup launched a big move at the hairpin with two laps, one lap or three laps, whatever it was, to go and basically elbowed him aside. Mm. Uh, remember the big shunt too the next day? Lowndes, Courtney, Winterbottom. Primarily yeah. Lowndes and Courtney arguing over the the run into Victoria Park and ended up pinballing two Falcons and wiped out Frosty and a couple of other blokes probably got a bit of damage out of it too. So uh, big chaos. I remember the turn eight one with Paul Umbrell back in 2004, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Where, when Larry ended up at the, the he got off it. He was going to get fined <laughs> and pinged and Larry, Larry ended up at the uh, tribunal with all of the drawings to show that um, the, the other car hadn't gone past the B pillar and, all sorts of bits. And I remember he got off that one, but it caused huge drama. There was plenty of cars crunched up. Scaife and Murphy in the fence there in 2006. Um, mm. There's not really too many corners that haven't. Oh, I remember Lowndes and Scaife, 2001, when Lowndes was debuting yeah. on the Sunday and they were having a rumble and Lowndes ended up in the fence. Yeah, and um, was in the sta- coming out of the staircase and one of them went for the undercut and the other one decided they weren't going to get it. And... Mm. Um, yeah, clash wheels and clash guards and both ended up in the concrete on the outside of the corner. Boom shakalaka, I believe mm. the term is. But, uh, yeah, there's so many. Uh, and you wrote a great story about this recently on the website, bhsleuth.com.au. <laughs> yes. it, it's, it's got a unique part of history because in 2002, there was too many cars for positions on the grid. So they had a pre-qualifying session. But mm. they didn't have it at Adelaide. They had it at Malala. And they dropped, I think, was it the f- slowest four or five car, five cars. Thomas mm. Mizera, Greg Crick, Dougal McDougal, Ross Halliday and Trevor Ashby uh, pounded around out at Malala and got dumped out of... So it's funny, 
we actually score them as having a round start for that round in the championship because it was part of, it was connected to Adelaide, but it wasn't at Adelaide. It's so weird. That's got to be, I'm struggling to think of any, I don't think there would be another event in no. Championship Street that would be like that because there's no, no other logical scenario for that to have no, happened. No, no, no. It's just one of and those. It, and it wasn't just things. the people who would ordinarily have been battling over the back half of the grid that were down there. It was the, all, It was a bunch of big names. It was Mark Scaife, Greg Murphy. Well, Scaife put himself in it. Remember that HRT... Remember that HRT were protecting Rick Kelly because it went off the previous year's championship results. But Scaife was going to be granted automatic clearance through to the Adelaide 500. Mm. But Rick Kelly was moving into the Young Lions car, so they opted to make him their automatic selection and put Mark through pre-qualifying because they all wanted to pick up more on the Dunlop control tyre, which was new for that year. Mm. So there was, there was a bit of method in the madness. would have been a disaster if something went wrong with the car and... He didn't make it through, but uh, uh, he did. Yeah, so another oddity of, of Adelaide 500 history. And I mean, we, the great thing is there are so many memories and moments, and we haven't even touched on support racing, concerts. Mm. Uh, I mean, Murray Walker was there every year for a couple of years as kind of the ambassador of the Adelaide 500. Um, lucky enough to spend some time commentating with him on the PA, I've got, I've got the DVD somewhere. I've got to dig it out. It's a pretty cool thing to have that we ended up there. Oh, yeah. You called a ute race with him, didn't you? I called a ute race with him on TV. Mm. But but a year or two or three prior, uh, so that must have been 2007, the first year of the Channel 7 deal when I was in that world, and I was doing the PA commentary. Paul Marinelli was the on-track commentator, and I would go in and help him out and do a bit of stuff in the pits and stuff because uh, I wasn't um, – support category racing was done. So I was, was not busy. Uh, it was part of my deal. And Murray came into the box for the Saturday race. I think it was. And oh, I think I was in the pit lane. And then the following day I was back in the box. So he called the whole race with us uh, and, and was so good. Such a, a great guy. Um, yeah. That's one that you stop and think about and go, ah, I commentated a race or two with Murray Walker. Yeah. Wow. Never thought I'd do that. So <laughs> things that you only do at Adelaide. Um, mm. Remember that there's been some pretty cool demos of stuff over oh, the years. Yeah. Well, the first ever event, 1999, they had, I think they called it Formula Adelaide. It was 60s mm. Formula One cars. Jack Brabham in a Lotus 49, for Christ's sake. Um, a bunch of cool 60s Formula One cars. There was uh, a bunch of classic touring cars there that year as well. Remember that Ferrari brought Jean-Éric Verne and a Ferrari Formula One car out? What a couple of years ago? Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. That thing was that, that was that was nice to see. That was really good. <laughs> Seeing a relatively contemporary F one car around the streets of Adelaide again and a Ferrari. That was great. Mm, mm. There's been some really cool stuff over the years. Concerts have been, you know, massive names, big acts. You know, the Chili Peppers in recent times is one that springs to mind. That's the only concert that I ever went to at, at an Adelaide five hundred because it was. Busy. I, I didn't yeah. go to race events to go to concerts because if, everyone always asks me, did you go and see X, whether it was at the Gold Coast or Townsville or Adelaide or wherever the race event was? Mm. I think that's – I went to one or two at Sydney Olympic Park, but that's the only other one that I went to. Uh, I guess I was just too busy at the others and not really into it. Um, you were 92,999 of your best friends. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Which is probably an important point to make because don't forget the 2019 Sunday crowd at this event, so just two years ago, uh, they had to put up the, the sell-out signs. We, they had to stop people from coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So isn't it amazing how this event suddenly goes from that to the following year having a crowd number release that is down and then suddenly is dead. Mm. Just, anyway, refer to my earlier points in the podcast for my feelings about what's happened with the Adelaide 500, but whether it uh, returns or not, it holds a very special place in the hearts and minds of Australian motorsport fans. Its legacy is long and profound. It has provided us with some amazing motor racing and events that, all of us wouldn't have got to see otherwise. It's given us some of, I reckon, when you count the top five Adelaide 500 moments, they will all feature prominently in a top 10 list of supercar moments of all time because the Bathurst moments always overpower everything else. Mm. But I reckon Adelaide, you know, when they were saying it's the world's biggest and best touring car race, 
They were absolutely right. The crowd sizes, the racing. Look, Bathurst to me is number one. It is totally unique and it's the holy grail and the holy event. But this, this was the thing that put us on the map. You look at what it did from 1999 onwards, you think about the sheer amount of sponsorship that was written because of a big marquee event like that that helped pave the way for the Gold Coast. Although the Gold Coast started in the early 90s, it was really the Grand Prix that got it started and then Mm. it was the Adelaide 500 that kept everyone else on their toes because they were always going bigger and better and doing more and more cool stuff. You know, street events on Olympic Park in Sydney, the Townsville Street Track, all this stuff has so much to thank Adelaide and the 500 for for the blueprint and setting the tone for the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, uh, well, that's the other thing. Like, aside from Bathurst, our sport didn't have a second genuine crown jewel event. And this, is, this was it. it. It's the thing that stood head and shoulders above every other event on the calendar. It was a genuine mainstream, uh, mainstream public event. Big times. Those, those don't... Events this special don't come along very often. No, I think it'll be, the ab- it'll be the prolonged period of time and the absence of the event that makes it grow fonder. What is it, the old line that um, mm. time makes the heart grow fonder or whatever it is? Absence uh, makes the heart absence, grow fonder. Yeah, absence, that's, that's what I was thinking of. Uh, that's exactly right. The, you won't know what you've had until it's gone. It's gone for the moment. I'm presuming it's not coming back because I just think it's in the too hard basket to, to, to happen. But I am totally hoping that I'm wrong. But the reality is that as years go by, I think it's important to celebrate and honour those who have uh, contributed to, to putting an event like that together for so many years. And the best way we can in our little world of what we do is to put together the, the ultimate kick-ass Adelaide 500 book that will have all the results, all the stats, all of the, the great memories, all of the cool photos, all of the milestone stuff that went on there in that 22-year period from 99 to 2020. And all those events and races and cars and stars, uh, we'll put it all together and uh, make something that's, that's pretty cool. So I think that's our little way to do it. I'm sure there's other people who can do um, other things. But uh, for us, that's the way that I guess we channel our emotion, Will. We make books yeah. out of stuff. And anyone who's got Racing the Line, which came off the back of the announcement that Holden was going to cease to be a, an active brand, knows that, like, we we do a good job with things like we because this is what we're passionate about. We we love Holden as a brand. We love the Adelaide Five Hundred as an event, and it deserves. And this is what we do. Yep. This is what we do. Yep, absolutely. We'll announce a bit more about it early uh, next year, uh, pre-order and opening up and and that uh, side of things as well. We've got. Plenty of books, plenty of plans for next year. Let's run through quickly some of the memories that some of our sleuth readers and followers have provided via uh, social media. Um, Adam Alford, I'll start with him. He's covered off the time uh, in 2012 when Jamie Winkup won the race. Of course, his dad, David, died a week or so beforehand. Um, And Adam says, actually, that was the first year he'd gone to the event without his own dad who'd passed away. So Mm. I guess there was a bit of a kindred spirit there in the grandstand and in the race car as well. He, He dragged his brother along who was good enough to go to sort of take the place of his dad, who was not a motorsport fan. But there, there you go. An event yeah. brought someone to the track that normally wouldn't go to a car race. You know, that's, that, that, that says a lot. And, and that, that, that race is why Jamie Winkup bought that car. That's his mm. Bathurst winning car of 2012. I know we've covered it. If you haven't heard those episodes of the podcast, uh, last year, you'll have to go find the episode number. I don't remember off the top of my head. The 13. Jam- 13? 13 was Kate. Kate was 13. Episode 13. AFL fans will know why that's important. That Anthony Hudson impression I just lobbed in there. 13, 13. Buddy in Tassie, 13 goals. Anyway, um, we've done an episode with Jamie and we've also done one about Kate, that car. But I think he's driving that race where he had to three stop and basically turn qualifying laps all day on the Saturday was just about his... That's the peak of powers drive. And I think, thinking about it now, you think about all the superstar drivers, Scaife, Ambrose, Lowndes, so many of them had drives that were peak of power stuff at Adelaide. Yes, mm-hmm. at Bathurst, but Scaife from last to first in 2000, he was peak of powers with HRT. Ambrose won four in a row, peak of powers with Stone Brothers. 
Jamie 2012, that's probably the peak of his powers in terms of being a winning machine and they were all at Adelaide and all performing. Yep, totally agreed. And you think of a couple of Van Gisbergen's drives there that netted victories as well. Scotty in the Mustang in 2019, the, the first time DJR Team Penske had scored any wins in Adelaide and he just wiped the floor with everyone. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I like James Perry's uh, memory. His mm. memory is Paul Stubber putting on a one-man slideshow in the Yellow <laughs> Camaro in the uh, touring car historic racing while leading the race. He got a standing ovation after every race, which I think every time he's ever driven that car in that manner, he pretty much gets that. Oh, for sure. He only knows how to drive it one way, and it's, it's fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not in a straight line. Uh, mm. Anthony Anderson about Scotty McLaughlin's battle with Wing Cup in 14 and dropping the F-bomb on live TV, which was the moment that made Scott McLaughlin. It put him in the national conscience. People knew mm. who he was. And if you were Volvo, holy Oof. shit. That's yeah. the best thing that could have ever happened. Not just nearly win a race, but get all that publicity and promotion. Yes, he did drop a swear word, but I'm sure that the team at Volvo Car Australia weren't too upset about it, given what it, uh, it led to. Brandon Lee uh, covers off the whole Van Gisbergen win in 2013 at Techno after he'd left Stone Brothers, which had become Erebus. So he's definitely um, across that with you. Uh, Darren Jacobs says about Craig Lowndes' drive in 1999 from the back of the grid. One on Saturday, got sent to the rear after that contact with Danny Osborne that sent mm. the colour scan car. That was the old Larco Mitre 10 car that got absolutely <laughs> pancaked. You know, the it one that he built, with the, he built with all that trick gear in it and that seating position inset inside the car. That was that car and it totally toasted it. But I think Darren's probably with a whole pile of people who would say that that Lowndes last to first drive was, was one of the, the best memories. And then Nathan Kayser, he's slightly, slightly <laughs> conflicted here, but I do have to agree with him. 2015 stadium super trucks, mate, when those oh. things went out the first time standing in the pit lane, I was, I was trying to do a corporate hospitality box visit chat session at pro drive. There were no one, there was no one to chat to, because every corporate guest had pissed off out the front, through the doors, to the balcony to watch these things go flying past over the jumps. I gave up and went out there with them and watched it too. That was sort of the, the thing that the moment that the stadium super trucks arrived was, was in Adelaide. And, yeah. Well, up in the, up in the press room, because that's where I was, everyone was up against the window watching these things come past at alarming heights. <laughs> well, it wasn't quite, wasn't quite face height, but it was, it, was, it was closer than most things came past us had. It was something we'd never really seen before and it no. definitely got a lot of people's attention. They became the instant crowd favourites. I did have one guest in that ProDrive corporate box come to me and say, is there any chance they could run the main race? So, <laughs> <laughs> thought, could you imagine 78 laps of jumping trucks? There'd be none left after eight laps. Jeez. Uh. Uh, ambitious, uh, good thought, but not sure that we could quite uh, pull that one off. Uh, as we've mentioned, Adelaide 500 has got a special place, as you can tell in our stories. There's so many things that we haven't had time to cover up on, but we wanted to at least um, mark the occasion, talk about the Adelaide 500. Uh, we could have let it slip through to the keeper and gone on with some other interview shows, but we felt that we wanted to, in a way, I guess, um, mourn it for the moment. And, hmm. uh, and have a bit of a chat about uh, some of the good stuff that we, we know from over the years. So Remember the good times. Remember the good times. You never know. They might be around the corner again. Yeah, there was heaps. And hmm. we look forward to, um, to bringing those to life and in, in keeping them alive in, in future years down the track. We've got plenty more podcasts in upcoming weeks, Will, before we get through into Christmas and the summer break. Uh, in the next few episodes, might be the next one, not too sure yet. We'll see how we travel. I'm going to catch up with Andy Raymond, son of the great Mike Raymond, of course, part of the... Channel 7 broadcast team for their years on Australian touring cars and uh, for a long time with Fox Sports in NRL and uh, boxing. He's got a lot of great stories. He's been doing his own podcast in recent times after finishing up at Fox. He's got a lot of great stories. He's a ripping guy that we probably haven't heard much from in the motorsport side of things for, for many, many years. So we're going to have a chat to him in the next few weeks and we'll wheel that one out and let you know when it's coming. Got a few other blokes on my list that I'm trying to nail before we get too far and the good news here in Victoria is that things are changing in terms of us opening back up to the world and the borders are opening to New South Wales and there's stuff going on like we can leave our house, Will. We can go, Great, for, a, isn't it? We can go for a little drive. 
I got it. It doesn't have to be the shops. It doesn't have to be the shops. I went and got a haircut. It was amazing. Uh, me too. It took me 14 weeks. Uh, I think I lost three kilos at the hairdresser. Uh, but we've got some really good podcasts coming up. Uh, just before we go to, um, very quickly, I know we've got a, a bunch of passionate fans out there. We want to say thank you again for listening to what we do. But we'd also love if you could vote for us in the Australian Podcast Awards. The details for it and the link are on the V8 Sleuth Facebook page if you're trying to find it. But if you go to the website, australianpodcastawards.com and go to the listener's choice, type in the V8 Sleuth podcast and put in a vote for us, we would be most appreciative. Not sure that we're going to win a big mozza of prizes or anything, but we'd love if you can translate your passion and love for what we do and for the sport into a little bit of a click-click for us in the, in the Australian Podcast Awards. That'd be pretty cool. Indeed. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes for this episode too, just to make that a little bit easier. Have you voted for us already? I did, actually. Yeah, I did. <laughs> as, soon, as soon as I saw the post on our socials, I thought, oh, yeah, yep, that's a good thing to do. Well, do I, know, I know we've got three, me, my wife, you. I think your mm. wife should click on that. That'll be four. We're up to four yep. then. So I'll get, I'll get our dog too. Yep. Yeah, five. You get I, Rosie too. Rosie can do it too. That's yeah. six. We're, we're flying here. We might yeah. be at this rate. This could be. This could be. You might get a participation award. <laughs> hey, I'll take anything. Uh, yeah. Award is an award, mate. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. That's our little look back at the Adelaide 500. We've got plenty of chats coming up over the upcoming weeks. Uh, we will do a listeners Q and A um, podcast too in the next few weeks as well, will because there's been a lot of questions flowing in on the socials in recent times. So. Uh, back to work, my friend. Well done. Well played. Some great Adelaide 500 memories there. Uh, for those who are listening, thank you for listening. We're done. That's the VH Loop Podcast powered by Timkin. We'll be back with you next week with plenty more motor racing content. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.